0: All right. Welcome back, everybody. This is our third podcast with Jamie York. Jamie, how's it going?
1: I'm doing very well. A bit busy. Um, Busy time of year somehow getting ready for the next school year. Got a trip to India. A lot of exciting things in my life, but I'm doing well. Thank
0: you. Wow, that trip to India sounds tremendous. Have you planned it for a long time?
1: Um, You know, India is one of these places that I just find incredibly fascinating. I've had the tremendous fortune in my life, uh, the privilege of being able to travel to more than 40 countries um, over time. And India is a place that um, I, I guess I'm most fascinated by because whereas I see other countries that perhaps the old term may have been developing countries and whatnot, where I think a lot of the culture is being lost and people are kind of wanting to, you know, or, or, it seems that certain cultures are wanting to get rid of their culture and just become modern western american whatever oftentimes not adopting the the best parts of our american culture (laughs) and 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 i find that a bit sad but india is you know maybe it's just partly because it's so huge it just um just even though it's changing rapidly in many ways it's just still india you know we can't we can't dilute its culture at all. And I find it fascinating and refreshing and great people to talk with, a little bit of a different mindset, but just deeply philosophical and wonderful people. So this will be my fifth trip there. I'm excited to immerse myself in it. It's a horrifically long journey, though, getting there, as you might imagine.
0: <laughs> it's still a trek. That's what they called it those days, right? Yeah, Trekking. yeah.
1: I mean, it's slightly better than getting on a ship as it might have been 150 years ago, but it, <laughs> it still feels like uh, a monumental journey for sure. And it is. Uh, it's at the other side of the world, and it's definitely a different mindset, but it's exciting.
0: Well, everybody here is wishing you safe travels, and we're hoping that uh, you bring back not just some great stories, but uh, a little bit of that culture, and maybe we'll see how that affects uh, the way that you view Modern education, because I'm pretty sure you're going to get to meet some interesting families and people from Asia, from that part of Asia, that southern part of Asia.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's so through, I, through all of my travels that I've done, I guess I've been uh, and I've given math workshops in 22 different countries. And, you know, I've really come to appreciate being here. And not that, you know, I'm not normally a flag raising American. America's the best. America's the best. I mean, but there are many things about America I really love and I'm very appreciative of. And one of the things is, you know, much more of a sense of freedom in terms of education. You know, I certainly believe that ultimately if education is going to be successful, we have to give power to the teachers to be able to create a curriculum, to create a program, to create the daily lessons that they need for the children that happen to be in front of them rather than have it dictated. So many other countries are much more extreme than the U.S. in terms of dictating the curriculum and in particular having these exams at the end of 12th grade that are just so, um, I don't know, soul crushing, so challenging. Ooh. If you want to go to university, you've got to do this standardized test and that completely dictates your future. We we talk sometimes in the U.S. about high stakes testing. We don't know what that means really <laughs> compared to these mm. other countries. So I appreciate You know, the fact that I was at a school in Boulder, Colorado, at a Waldorf school where I had complete and total freedom to do what I felt was best for the students in front of me. And I didn't really appreciate that until I've traveled and seen, you know, the other extreme where they don't have much freedom and they have to teach this particular curriculum. And, you know, they can't take a little side note to do something that's really fascinating and interesting because they don't have time. They just need to get through the material. Mm -hmm.
0: You know, can I ask you, and here's an interesting question. You had to come up with your own curriculum, not just as a necessity for when you were teaching in, the, in that Waldorf school, but your whole program, your math academy, your academy is uh, the, the cumulative work of sitting down and putting together a systematic uh, coursework that will advance student through the grades. And you had to pretty much come up with that and and find what worked for yourself. Modern teachers, they, they, they don't have that advantage, but what type of, I mean, what was your journey like when, when you were coming up with this curriculum? How did you wrap your head around it?
1: I mean, it's a very interesting question. And yes, indeed, it was a journey. Um, you know, I started teaching freshly out of college. Two weeks after I finished my undergraduate degree, I was thrown into the classroom mm-hmm. in a private boarding school in New Hampshire called Kimball Union Academy. And I enjoyed it very much, but the boarding school experience is certainly very intense. And after a couple of years, I thought I'm taking life too seriously. And that's when I started my sort of life as a traveler and that kind of changed my whole life. And I came back from all of that after in some ways six years of, Having amazing experiences in the world in many many different ways, Hmm. Um, coming back from that and thinking, okay, I need to find, if I'm going to be a teacher, I need to find an educational system, an educational philosophy that has a real purpose behind it, that has a philosophical basis, other than oh, we're just trying to get you prepared, you know, for university or prepared for a test or something like that. and that's really what brought me to Waldorf education was that search for something more, I like the word meaningful, uh, with a real mm-hmm. philosophical basis. And, you know, Waldorf education is one of those educational um, practices, you could say, uh, that really does have a true philo- philosophical basis behind it. Um, and, and so when I first came to the Waldorf school there, um, you know, one of the first things they said was, you know, you don't, we don't have textbooks here. Which is, you know, true to a large degree. And, you know, it took me a while to really figure out the ropes and figure out what was going on. But the truth was, yeah, they wanted me to create the material that I bring bring to the students, that I needed to be the author of the work that I was bringing to the students. You know, you could say uh, figuratively or uh, but for me, it ended up in the end being quite literal. I mean, and that was very different because when I taught at this boarding school, it was like, here's a textbook, this is what you have to teach. And it was all pretty much dictated exactly what I had to do. And I remember feeling that I it was not okay for me. I almost had to like cover it up. Oh, a student asked this interesting question and we went off on a tangent for a class. Did something that wasn't in the textbook and i was feeling like i was doing something naughty and i better not have any of my colleagues (laughs) find out right it was interesting like that and because you had a task and it was to get through all of the textbook that's what you had to do and suddenly the other extreme was i'm finding myself in this waldorf school and it's like well and especially because i was in colorado which is a little bit of the wild west and you can do whatever you want and you know so i found myself asking that question well what would be created from scratch, the best possible curriculum that I could create for students in grades one through 12. And that's what I dedicated, you know, a good 20 years of my life to trying to answer that giant question. And it was hard. You know, I ended up talking to a lot of people and, you know, and of course another person, you know, it's, it's a rare privilege for somebody to be even in that position of doing that. And many people would not enjoy it. It would be overwhelming. But for me, I loved it, and it it really motivated me, and it inspired me, and another person in that same position that would be willing to do it, of course, would have come to a very different result. They wouldn't, you know, but my curriculum that I came up with is something that, you know, I I, I feel good about, And, and it was designed to do, from my perspective, to prepare these kids as best as I could for not only university, of course, they need to be prepared for that, but... Also, to help them, as we look at this through a Waldorf lens, to best help them in their developmental journey to become, I don't know if I say the best human beings, but the, the healthiest, the best, the most compassionate, the, the most, um, yeah, the, the human being that is, is really equipped to go out in their journey and find their own destiny, ultimately. And, of course, that's
0: a deep yeah, thing, know. and it's hard. I, I agree. It is hard. Um, what brings me to one of the things you said uh, made me think in terms of, all right, so in a classical education, you teach the material, and then mastery of that material brings out a uh, uh, a quality of persons uh, in certain other types of education, and maybe the The philosophy or the way they they go about it is, you know, they teach these life lessons, like maybe in Montessori, they teach life lessons. And from that, you, you know, glean the skills to then take on more intellectual types of work. And uh, I think that what's unique about Waldorf and what you mentioned before is how you you're doing, you know, the heart, the head, the hands. You're giving the, the whole person information and that all of that information is absorbed. And that somehow in doing so, you, the output is equal to the input. You suddenly have a, a more well-rounded person at the end of a lesson than you do someone who just picked up skills or someone who just felt good about being able to do task work. Somehow marrying all those things together makes it work. And that's the philosophy, but you still have to have a good quality curriculum. But the, the content still has to drive the point home. And I think that's where your system really shines because you're true to that that uh, head, heart and hands adage. Now, you did this 20 years ago. Have you thought recently about any other types of philosophies that inform the way that your curriculum might evolve or has evolved since Its inception.
1: It's an interesting question, um, and what has informed, you know, my own philosophical approach to education, um, and what has influenced me as a teacher. Um, And and I can't say I'm, I'm knowledgeable in all forms of education, but I have done a little bit of reading and research into just the history of education, which I think is quite interesting in and of itself. How did that evolve? How did we get to the point that we are today? Um, But I'd say, um, you know, that, that ultimate question of, and it's such an enormous question, to really consider how is it, how is what I am bringing to my students influencing them developmentally? You know, you can get down to how will this problem, this one specific math problem, how will it have an effect on my students? course it's usually a bigger topic you know if when I teach seventh grade algebra I'm considering what is it that I'm trying to do here that's going to have that the right influence on the students developmentally it's it's when you really go deeply into that it's a pretty powerful process Um, and and I'd have to say um, you know with that journey I think over time I've I've come to learn that you know, sort of our mainstream approach again, it's too focused on just, you know, as you'd imagine, if, if you've got a system that, you know, has such an emphasis on accountability. So we need to have all these standardized tests so that our schools and teachers and students will all be accountable. And I, and I, kind, of, I kind of get the accountability thing, but I think it's starting from an assumption that, I mentioned this before, that the teachers don't really know how to teach. And and then hmm. you're coming about it in the wrong way, really. But um, you know, to start to to think that there's much more to math than just learning these simple skills. If you've got a system that's going to be based upon standardized testing, it's only understandable. It's it's to be expected that it's all going to be skills based. But the, the most important thing again is, you know, certainly more important. And skills are important. I always feel like I have to say that math <laughs> skills are important. Yeah but this idea of really trying to cultivate a higher level thinking, you know, mathematical thinking, to really develop the thinking, the creative thinking, the problem solving, all that, is more important than the skills. And then you know, at that higher level even is this, trying to cultivate this joy and love for learning that's so important. And it's, and it's not easy, of course. And then you can go deeper. And that's what I've been alluding to right now, is you know, how are we really influencing their development of a human being? As a human being, um, you know, I'm often I often say at the end of the day, you know, the, the material, the content, the math problems that I brought to my students, that's not really important. That's not the important thing. It's all these other things that I'm talking about, how it affects them developmentally, how, what are the life lessons the students are learning through doing this? All of that, I feel, is more important. Although I will at the end defend my choice of curriculum, curriculum topics, even though I say "Ah, that's really not that important, Um, but I, I love the math that I teach. I love the topics that I teach. And that's important that any teacher is really enthused about the material that they're bringing to the students. That really has a positive effect right there on the students.
0: Yeah, absolutely. They, they become motivated when what you bring to them is a lot. Yes. If it's something that sounds a little too by rote or, or, or dead. It, it's no wonder that they get fidgety and they're not. I, I just find that kids are interested not because you have to necessarily entertain them as much as you have to engage them. Uh, and I think that they become motivated when they see advancement in themselves. And seeing advancement in yourself is fairly difficult, especially in a topic like math. I and mean, we talked about that. You, can, you, you have math trouble. I, I can't do this. I'm stuck. But if you can coach them past that point, uh then you have the right material that speaks to their developmental age. I think that's where that love of learning sparked, and suddenly they're alive again.
1: Well, and you have to you normalize. Yeah, you have to normalize their feelings, right? We live in a world <laughs> feelings play a big part, isn't it? You know, especially today. But I mean, it's true. A lot of kids have all these feelings, especially as adolescents, where feelings can just completely wreak havoc on their lives. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and as teachers, we need to consider all of that. But if I can normalize their feelings, so how many students, every time they get confused, think, oh, I'm confused because I'm bad at math. And so I so much like to just point it out. I'd point it out. It's like there is no math worth doing where you don't have to work through some amount of confusion. If I'm going to do anything worthwhile, you got to work through confusion. That's part of the journey. And you know, it's gonna be different for different students. Some students, probably the majority hate being confused. It pushes for some students. It's so extreme. It just pushes their buttons and they just, you know, completely can't, as soon as they're confused, they freak out. Right. Other students are so comfortable, you know, so fine with being confused. They don't even notice they're confused. It doesn't bother them at all. You know, it's kind of a funny thing. Um, and, and so you normalize these kind of feelings. How many students feel bad when they make a mistake? Oh, that must mean I'm bad at math. And I say, well, actually making a mistake is not only necessary and good, but it's, it's actually really helpful for learning. You need to make mistakes in order to learn. That's such an important thing. And so that's the these are the sort of things that are important and once we can especially in adolescents, get them to the point where they can realize oh i used to think i was just terrible at math because of all these reasons i said that they see it just seems to be reinforced and there's a narrative going around in their head i'm bad at math i'm bad at math and then to get them to think actually what you're experiencing is fairly fairly normal number one and then secondly is stop comparing yourself to everyone else we live in a world with yeah, that, that's, standardized that's testing and all that, we're constantly comparing ourselves to each other. You know, are you, where do you rank yeah. in your class? Are you, you know, you want to be number one and all this competitive sort of atmosphere oftentimes ends up being quite detrimental for all ends of the spectrum. And and so to teach them that a lot of this that you're experiencing is normal, number one, and then number two, it's like, what's the real goal? I mean, the real goal is for you to improve, right? My expectation of you is one thing, and that is that you try your best. That's it. Try your best. And if you're genuinely trying your best, we'll reach that goal of improving, and everyone can improve, wherever you're at. And if I can really get them to live into this, and I feel that I can, then kids start to feel successful, and then once they start to feel successful, their whole relationship to mathematics changes, and then amazing things are possible, and guess what? Then they'll actually learn the skills, because they're in a space to receive it.
0: That's true. I mean, you're, you're talking, uh, what comes to my mind almost immediately is the battle between optimism and pessimism. And we tend to be surrounded by a sense of pessimism, at least as adults we notice it because, you know, the, the news media or the things that we consume outside of that tend to have a darker tone than they had during a more optimistic stage. I can remember growing up and being in grade school in the 70s and you know there it was there was a lot of optimism about the world and the way it was and you know even the things that i consumed as a child the things that i did as a child were more dictated by the those cliches that we as americans really want to embody you know the stick-to-itiveness of getting past your the the obstacles are in front of you the, optimism of a better future uh, I think that we need to look at the world more optimistically in order to then teach that there is optimism in the world so that this new batch of children can can embody that as well and then bring that to the, to, uh, the, the task at hand they have to spend the time with you so it's got to be meaningful we go back to that that meaning again. I mean, I don't know how you came upon it with your making math meaningful, but you stuck to it, and it is a gem. For, but parents out there need to know that you're really teaching a sense of optimism through skill building, and as a byproduct, these kids can do math, and they can do math very well.
1: Well, Mark, you you've said you've, you've said a lot there. <laughs> For sure. Um, you know, we both grew up, we're, we're close to similar ages here. And we both grew up mm-hmm. during a time of optimism. I mean, you know, certainly I remember when 1980 hit and thinking, this is our, you know, that's, I, I graduated high school in 81 and it was like, this is our decade. And, you know, this is when Ronald Reagan came into office and, you know, in spite of, you know, we can have all sorts of criticisms of him as a president, but, you know, whether it was due to him or whatever, there there was certainly a sense of optimism. There was this feeling, you know, I'm going to go to university. At that time, I was going to be a computer programmer. And, you know, I'm going to have a really successful life. There was that feeling, of course, that's going to happen. You know, but if if you look at that just historically, you know, we're coming on the tail end of an extraordinary time in history, aren't we? I mean, I always give the example. I give the example of my grandfather, who was born in 1906, you know, so we're talking well before World War One, and, and he grew up in Backwoods, Maine, in a place where I get they had trains that kind of came nearby. But, you know, there certainly was, he never got electricity until he was well into his 40s up in that area. Ooh. And, you know, so he, in the beginning of his, when he was young, the only way of getting around was by horse carriage and, and whatnot. Or, you know, if you're in a city by train or trolley or something like that. What an extraordinary thing, what he, the change that he was able to see, you know, just in terms of lifestyle and everything like that, you know, by, at a certain point he gets a refrigerator, he's got electricity in his house, he's got flush toilets, I mean, the list is long. And, you know, of course, automobiles, his son, my father, becomes a pilot. I mean, these are unimaginable things. And then his grandson, namely me, becomes a computer programmer. I mean, he saw all of that in his lifetime, extraordinary. And the assumption was, I mean, you're right, there was a sense of optimism. Of course, I'm gonna have a better life than the hard life my parents had. And that was, you know, certainly my father, you know, he, he was part of the baby boomers, et cetera. And it was like, yeah, that was that American dream. That was the height of it. And, and certainly my generation as well. But, you know, are, are our children now? having that clear sense of yes my life is going to be better than my parents i don't think so in the same way you Mm. know so it's there's a crisis there isn't there and and i'm not even don't get me wrong i'm not saying all that like being in the reagan times everything was great and all of that you know there was to some degree there was a certain amount of superficiality wasn't it you know it was all it was all based on materialism and materialism meaning acquiring material stuff uh, you know, and we can criticize all of that, but the reality is, I do think I worry about our young people today. I worry about people even in their twenties or thirties, and just there seems to be, um, yeah, lock of la, no, there seems to be a lack of optimism. There seems to be um, there seems they seem to be a bit lost spiritually. You could even say just lost in terms of what's the purpose of my life. You know, and that brings, back, brings me back to that statement I said, you know, that should be a big part of education is really, if I look at this, and part of this is my influence as a Waldorf teacher, you know, just look at these two things, and they're related, but one is to teach in a way so that these children really have learned truly what it means to be human. Everything they do, everything in their education should help them to understand what does it mean to be human. Being human as opposed to more than just an animal. I mean, I certainly believe that human human beings are not just animals. There's something more. Obviously, there's a lot in common with the animal kingdom, there's no doubt. But the the human being has something more. This ability to think creatively is certainly something that's a uniquely human capacity. And we're not just machines. We're more than that. So to be able to, to teach in a way that students really understand that, what does it really truly mean to be human? And then secondly, this idea of helping them to start a path down which they can discover their own destiny. I mean, those are big questions, but can we teach in a way that it's going to be possible for them to go out in the world and to discover that? I mean, very few people are able to really discover their destiny, you know, before they're 18 years old. But, and for me, it really took until I was 30. And that's okay. Mm. But that was part of the journey.
0: Well, you need a new tool set, a, a different type of tool set. I mean, we were handed to our teachers with a sense of optimism, and they turned that into uh, the type of generation that built this modern world. I mean, you and I are both computer programmers. We That did not exist with the baby boomers. That is a creation of people that, uh, were able to use the skills that they built and bring a new creative imagination. But one thing that struck me of what you said is, you know, this sense of humanity. Uh, there's almost a Cartesian philosophy wrapped into that where, you know, I think therefore I am is an important part of differentiating that's the that's really the the, what cleaved the world in two isn't it suddenly we we have a a pre and a post cartesian world where reason and uh scientific method come into play but you can't detach that from this the original these people came from very deeply spiritual place They did it to prove the existence of things, not to disprove the existence of things and to see the world and think in a different way. I think what you're describing is that we need a new way of thinking, a new way for a modern man to think.
1: Yeah, another big thing to talk about. (laughs) Very much so. And, you know, you mentioned Descartes and, you know, it's it's part of what, um, What I believe our students need to really experience is to experience the evolution of human consciousness. I mean, that's a big thing that I just said, and that's a very Waldorf thing, right? The evolution of human consciousness. And for our students to go in in some sort of form, in some sort of microcosmic form, how can they go through in their own individual development, many of the same stages that humanity went through over millennia. It's an interesting thing. And, and so mm. if I look at that, and that's part of what I try to achieve as a teacher, uh, how is it that the thinking that I want my students to have by the time they're in 12th grade, how do they get there? What is that journey that I'm hoping that they will undertake? So let me give an example for instance with the Pythagoreans with the ancient Pythagoreans they were sometimes referred to as number mystics or cabalistic. I think is sometimes a term that's used um, and, and they believed that somehow within numbers had the essence of how God created the universe so to have my students try to live into that a little bit and what that would be like and they took it to such an extreme in a way that, you know, they believed that, and, and to some degree, there could be said to be truth in some degree, you know, I'm not sure it, it absolutely began with the Pythagoreans, but it was a beginning of this, it was the beginning of this epic quest that humanity has been on for quite some time to use math and science to really understand the universe. Now, for the Pythagoreans, it was understanding how God put together the universe. That may be a more controversial statement in today's world. But still, we do use math and science to try to understand the mysteries of the universe. And so they, as an example, in terms of music, it's quite fascinating. And, And I have my students study this in 10th grade. We do a little bit of it in 7th grade in the physics block and then again in 10th grade to really understand how ratios play into music. It's a fascinating thing. This idea of the Pythagorean ratios of, of uh, different uh, harmonies that can occur in music. Now, I'm not a musician, but I've studied a fair bit of this. And that if you look at the perfect fifth. And so, for instance, if you play a note, you can help me out, Mark, because you are a musician. You play an yeah. A and mm-hmm. then somebody else plays an E, a fifth above. Yes. And these two notes, yeah. if played together, should sound pleasing, harmonious. Right? And it was Pythagoras who actually determined, although he didn't frame it in this way, but we will say that the frequencies, this is what it evolved into, that the frequencies of those two notes are in a three to two ratio. And the Pythagoreans would have looked at that and said, well, that's because God created that way that the beauty of music is really, uh, is really made evident through the simplicity of ratios of numbers. So a simpler ratio will sound better. And to some degree, you might agree with that as a musician, although jazz musicians may have a little bit of a difference to it. But, you know, three to two ratio is going to sound better than an 11 to seven, you know, two notes that have frequencies in an 11 to seven ratio. So that's one of the ways that the Pythagoreans kind of started down that road of trying to understand sort of the wisdom of God, and in particular, how numbers really work and to, you know, help us to understand things. And so this was a... A journey, if you fast forward, then, you know, a couple thousand years to the time of Descartes, he's then taking that a little bit further. And I think that's what you were alluding to. You know, this whole idea of the scientific method, you know, the sci- the way that really dominates our thinking today, because, yes, it used to be that logical thinking. It used to be that scientific thinking it really wasn't what guided us. in in terms of our own beliefs in the world. And so I think of it, and it's an oversimplification for sure, but I like to think of it that the scientific method, at least the beginning stages of its development, were really, um, those first steps were taken by Galileo with his his, uh, emphasis on experimentation, with Descartes, with let's really have rational, thinking. We want to only believe something once we absolutely can demonstrate to ourselves and our thinking that it's true. Um, And also Descartes' need and desire for what we would now call empirical evidence. We need to gather data, we need to look at the numbers, and and that will help us to understand the world. And then, of course, Newton comes along and says, well, it needs to be objective, right? It needs this objectivity, (laughs) which is... A fascinating thing. What does it really mean to be objective? We seem to be having problems with that even today, don't we? Um, But, you know, the three of them kind of taking this. And so it's and and yet I want my students to kind of experience some of this evolution of the thinking as well. Um, And so let me just highlight that, that there's a big difference between, as I see it, uh, how a ninth grader thinks versus an 11th grader. So the ninth grader is still pretty much thinking pretty black and white, still pretty concrete, right? We take that a little bit further in 10th grade, the logic becomes a little bit more, uh, you you could say rigorous in 10th grade. Um, in some ways, the 10th grader becomes, uh, I would say more materialistic in their thinking. Can become, this can be a time for somebody, for an individual where, You know, if there's a period in their life that they are a hardcore atheist, it might be 10th grade. It may be into adulthood as well. But many, I find, at that time in 10th grade, that can be, you know, an appropriate time for them to kind of really question the existence of God and so forth. Um, But then in 11th grade, a new kind of thinking comes about. A new kind of thinking. And so that's what you were asking about is, you know, this new kind of thinking. What is really meant by that? I think, can I what is that? go a little bit
0: further into yeah, that, do ahead. you think? Yeah, please, please. Uh-huh. Um,
1: and so when I teach this block on Descartes, because I think it's so important for the students to understand where some of this comes from, and we go back and look at Descartes had a book, um, oftentimes just referred to as Discourse on the Method, published in 1637. And it's in that book, most people recognize the, the quote from it or the idea of, I think, therefore I am. Uh, cogito, cogito, ergo sum. I have no idea if I pronounced the Latin correctly or not. But this idea, because I can think, then I exist. Right? Where did that come from? You know, it came from him having this crisis. Because he actually went down this road, which would have been very unique at that time. And he was a unique individual. Where he became unbelievably skeptical. To the point where he perform this thought experiment because he had learned that some of what he was being taught in his Jesuit schooling some of what he had been taught was essentially dogma he was being taught things about science for instance that he recognized was not true he had heard from, Galileo had disproved some of Aristotle's ideas and he had been taught some of Aristotle's thinking which by the way I think had been the way that it was taught Aristotle's thinking was distorted but I won't go down that road um, And so Descartes realized, well, if I've been taught some things that aren't true, what else that some things that I know aren't true? Well, what have I been taught that is true? How do I know what's true? And he then this thought experiment, which was astoundingly terrifying if you could actually pull it off is to doubt everything that you have been taught and everything you have come to believe doubt everything. And he went so far, I think he had something of a, you know, psychological breakdown, honestly. So he was in this, he was in this usually what's called a stove, but it was a stove heated room, this tiny little room. And he spent the winter there completely isolated. And I think his servant would just bring him food. And that is it. He had no conversation with anybody. And he did this thought experiment that culminated on this one particular night in November. And he doubted even the existence of his own body i mean how could you do that i think i have a body but maybe i'm just deluded maybe it's not and out of that he came up with there were only two things that he could really that's what he wanted to know if i could doubt everything is there anything i could possibly know in my own thinking to be true and he came up with two things one was that i exist i exist i must exist because i can think Okay, that's one thing that I know, is that I exist. Anything else? And then he he said, well, I know also that God exists. Those are the two things that he could know. And that's an interesting thing to read his argument, and he wasn't the first. Am I correct? I want to say it was Thomas Aquinas also tried to have, it may not have been him, I may be confusing it with someone else, also tried to have a logical argument, a proof, if you will, of the existence of God, right? And Descartes had something of a proof of the existence of God. My students read that, and it's like, well, I don't know about that. I mean, you know, I personally would believe you can't prove such things. I can't prove to a believer that God doesn't exist or an atheist that God does. He's just, there's no proof of this. But this was an interesting thing that Descartes had that experience. And then out of this, various things came along. And then finally, he has this whole philosophy that he develops uh, that was unbelievably impactful. In fact, the full name of the book is Discourse on the Method of Rightly Conducting One's Reason and Searching for the Truth in the Sciences." a very ambitious title. One can say, sounds a bit arrogant. He's basically saying to the world, I'm going to show you how to rightly conduct your thinking and to actually do science. Right? So here's how you think properly. And the amazing thing, it was incredibly impactful and it was very much made a huge difference and here's how we're going to do science because at that point science really was based upon philosophy people sitting around thinking well this is what I think is true so let's just sit around philosophize about what we think is true and how the world works and so forth and he said no you got to do it this way an amazing thing but what I want to point out is this and it's this whole world of uh, epistemology so in terms of the world of philosophy epistemology is the study of which we come to understand how we acquire knowledge how do you acquire knowledge that's essentially what I was just describing this is part of what he was going down that road and he said well there are two real ways of acquiring knowledge two ways only two ways that you can acquire knowledge he said logical deduction makes sense And what he says is, really, don't believe anything until you know in your own thinking that it's true, that you have a logical explanation for why something is true. And then the other one, which has often been dropped and forgotten about, was evident intuition. What is that? I wouldn't say that Descartes was necessarily a devout Catholic. He was Catholic. Um, but he certainly wasn't an atheist. I just told you he came up with a proof of the existence of God. Um, but this idea of evident intuition as given by God, Now that's an interesting thing because in the following several hundred years, the world of mathematics went through, I would say, quite a bit of effort to expel in- intuition from the world of mathematics. What does that mean? What is intuition? And what does it mean to get rid of intuition? It's strange, isn't it?
0: Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, to me, you know, you're describing uh, belief as being in the state of chaos that's masquerading as just something that gets passed down, but it is somewhat chaotic. And even when you when you when you go back to Pythagoras some of these other great thinkers, even Aristotle, that everyone wanted to come up with a way of organizing things so that they can be out of the chaos and into order and therefore then understood and therefore then ingested into knowledge. You know, Cartesian doubt was absolutely seminal because, you know, you begin having that skepticism But unless you have the following methodology, I'm going to use deductive reasoning, but deductive reasoning had to have steps because you can't just think about them and get them. And I think this is where intuition is confusing. I think that intuition is a form of organization. It's not a feeling. It's a form of organizing that probably is because of our higher state of learning it's what separates us from man to animal we can now organize ourselves in certain ways i mean even language to some extent the fact that we're communicating has an innate structure within our brain probably develops over time we talked before about how children can absorb languages well that's Intuitive, because they're absorbing languages before they're absorbing knowledge, or the type of knowledge that you and I deem as something you learn at school. So this intuition has to be a bit of biology, it has to be a bit of uh, mysticism, it has to be a mix of all these things, but you can't get caught up in defining it as much as using it. So how do you use it? I think Descartes had a pretty good system for using it. it. said break things down to the simplest form. And then, whenever possible, the the solve things because the 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 first and simplest solution is the solution. And then I I think repeatability also came into play. I think he had four. uh, You might know this. uh, The the final thing is once you're able to do something, once you're able to break it down into its simplest form, once you're able to, you know, prove and use it in its simplest form then you must be able to repeat it. And then these things are true in the same way that he came to his own epiphany about his existence.
1: Yeah. Those four things you're referring to is what he referred to as his precepts. And that was, those were his four steps of doing science. Right. And um, I I won't get into all four of them, but yeah, that idea of collecting data, repeatability, breaking things down, et cetera, that was all part of it for sure. But, um, I want to go back and unpack this a little bit because I think it's interesting, this idea of what would it mean to expel intuition from mathematics? What is, and this is a good enough question right there is just what is intuition anyway? What does this really mean? And just, it's so relevant in today's world. I mean, what do people more than ever now believe all sorts of stuff? How did they come to believe it? You know, I heard a podcast recently from where Steven Pinker was talking and I admire him greatly. Um, He's a good thinker, cognitive psychologist, a lot of really good thinking. But he was talking about this very thing. How is it that people today are led to believe? And certainly one of the things is, is it's tied into their identity. You know, my particular political views. I identify as that that's part of who I am as a human being or as this belief system so I will believe I must believe anything that's within that package right it's these narratives that sometimes we hear about right that's why I believe it and, and of course this is a subconscious very much a subconscious process right but how much are people actually believing things because there's a true logical understandable um, scientific basis for them to believe it. As an example, he talks about this idea that many, many people in this world believe that so much of the world is worse off now than it was decades ago. And he's really countered all this. And I've talked to you about this a little, not in the podcast, but I've talked to you about this before, Mark, that, that, that people Mm -hmm. are led to believe where do they come up with these beliefs? How does that happen? It's a curious thing. Well, you know, pers- they-
0: uh, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, people want to believe. It's the same thing. Like well, I'll, I'll have a discussion with someone, and I bring up a point, and a person may, on the spot, come up with an answer, and then I, you know, we might say, well, I don't, yeah, maybe that's not quite right, but they will now, because it came out of their mouth, defend it to the end because it's now their belief right and and what you've done suddenly is i think that this is a modern version of it's not just that the conversation breaks down it's that reality breaks down when you're able to you know create a reality that in the face of evidence cannot be shaken I think this is this is a mistake. Now we've gone back into those dark times where, you know, maybe science was a little bit convoluted. Sure. If you make an excellent point. You make an excellent point that uh, what we believe will determine whether or not we're willing to listen next, open our minds next. Do you think intuition might be a way of closing our minds? Well, I mean, what we have to answer to the question of really
1: what is intuition? You know, how does that really work? But l- let me give an example, a couple of examples of this. So, you know, for, you know, since the beginning of time, just to give this simple example, people looked at the sun rising and setting, going through the sky, and you could say it became um, something of an intuition that they looked at and said, oh, I can see the sun is going around the earth. And so, this is an example that perhaps mathematicians would look at and say, you know, this is just a very simple example where we, our intuition has led us astray. Right? Our thinking, seemingly, if you want to think of that as the intuition, has led us astray. We look at something, we. S- we see it and we think, oh, therefore this is true. And so there are many examples in mathematics as well, higher level examples perhaps, where we can point at it and say, oh, we believed that this, our intuition led us to believe this was true and it's wrong. And therefore mathematicians said, well, we need to get rid of the intuition. And it's funny because when I look at, when I listen to someone like Steven Pinker, again, who I admire greatly, and I look at this and I hear him talk and I think, okay, part of his belief, you know, you got to start out with some basic foundational beliefs or assumptions, just like Descartes was, what can I, where can I start to build upon something? And a lot of these great thinkers come from an initial basis. It comes out of what I would say is materialism. This is the dominant philosophy today, materialism. What is, what is there in the world? You know, it's basically the study of ontology right? What exists in the world? And the dominant view today is amongst most thinkers and scientists, not all is that the only thing that exists in the world is material stuff. That's materialism. There's nothing else other than material stuff. And there are material explanations for everything, life, thinking, emotions, everything can be explained material, scientifically materially, whatever. And so it seems to me that, that Pinker, not to be, you know, who am I to be criticizing him, I suppose, but he's coming from this basic foundational start, yeah, axiomatic, if you will, that there is no God, that it's materialism. It's an atheist standpoint from the beginning. And so then we start to, well, then what is thinking? And so I happen to believe, and, and part of my basis is that thinking is it cannot be explained just materially, cannot. That my thinking alone is evidence in my mind of that the, material, the materialism is missing something. And hmm. Rudolf Steiner, the founder of Waldorf education, he talked about in his book Philosophy of Freedom, which is I like the you know the the other title of it is Intuitive Thinking as a Spiritual Path. So to try to train yourself to be able to think intuitively and to become a vessel for new, creative, independent thoughts. I mean, if somebody asked me where do I stand politically, am I Republican, Democrat? I mean, it's you know it's such a strange system in this country, just two parties. But where do I stand politically? Well, you know, I, I, I have my own political party, perhaps not really, but you know, this idea of independent thinking. That's, that's my basis is I believe that we should be independent thinkers. And yes, you're right. You mentioned that we need to be open-minded. We need to listen to other things, but you know, ultimately we need to develop this power of judgment for truth. And that's the biggest challenge today, isn't it? We're bombarded with information and ideas and a lot of the times emotionally charged, you know, narratives that this is what you must believe. Well, what can right. we really believe for ourselves? And so this idea of really trying to develop this intuition, I think, is important. And and I think that's actually this new kind of thinking that's really needed.
0: Wow. So you answered your own question in a terrific way. I'm not sure it's completely counter to what you started out with. I think that I think your path may have taken you through a circle, but ultimately you got back to this exact same place within your own curriculum. I think you do develop this new type of thinking because, you know, the mathematics are tied into the stories. The stories are tied into uh, the ability for someone to overcome even the most difficult questions. It's a bit of a hero's journey. It's a hero's journey that's, that's answered by yourself. It's kind of like these truths are truths because we see ourselves in, in everything. Maybe what Descartes did was he tried to break it down to the simplest form, but maybe the truth was he was overwhelmed by seeing himself everywhere.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me give another example. And, and I this ties into and, and something else I try to do with my students as part of this journey to really understand what it means to be human um, is to really tie together mathematics with philosophy and history and it's it 's an interesting oddity almost that most people, even mathematicians that i 've encountered, don 't really understand or even have knowledge of some of the most recent, um, not even very recent, but recent events in the history of mathematics. And what I'm referring to is the what is oftentimes labeled as the foundational crisis. So the world of mathematics experienced a foundational crisis. What does that mean? Just in short, uh, for many years, the foundation of mathematics was Euclid, the great geometer of ancient Greece, who said this is the foundation of mathematics and most people listening to this would recognize one of his thoughts in his work as this foundation of all geometry and therefore mathematics was this idea that two parallel lines never meet. Two parallel lines never meet, right? And, and to some degree, you could say that that was one of his postulates. It's not actually how it was worded, but we'll go with that for a bit. It was certainly a foundational concept within his book upon which everything was built. And most people would listen to me and say, well, yeah, of course two parallel lines never meet. No kidding. Well, if you start to change things, if you start to look at things differently, as people did in the middle 1800s, they started to realize that there were other possible geometries that didn't make that assumption. So you could have a geometry where parallel lines, where you had one way of saying this, is that parallel lines could meet. Or you could have other possible geometries that you could have through from a given line, a line passing through another point where there would be many different lines that could be parallel to it. You know, so you ended up with these strange geometries referred to as non-Euclidean geometries that turned out to be completely contradictory to Euclid but equally valid, completely equally valid. And so Euclid Euclid's whole geometry as the foundation. It's not like everything about Euclid was suddenly wrong, but it could no longer serve as a foundation for mathematics. This is the foundational crisis. So mathematics no longer had this rigorous, rock solid foundation of truth. And that's the way that Euclid was Euclid's work called The Elements was looked at. It's like, this is where we, how many times have you heard this? This is where we know pure and certain truth. It's mathematics. We know pure and certain truth. Right. And then suddenly we didn't have a foundation. This was a horrible thing. And mathematicians were talking about 120 years ago, around the turn of the 19th going into the 20th century. There was like all out war and it was ugly. And there was this huge philosophical debates about what we could do with this. And for the most part, the majority of the mathematicians at that time sided on they were on the side of logical, could say formal mathematics. What is formalism, formal mathematics? Well, that's where everything has to have a logical step-by-step proof, similar to what the ancient Greeks wanted, right? Everything has to have, if you're not proving things, and some of you may be familiar with this, you can go to university today, and there's still this mentality that the only kind of real math is formal math. If you're not proving things, you're not doing real math. Right? Well, you can kind of tell the way I'm talking about it. I don't believe that. It doesn't mean I don't believe in proofs. I just believe there's more to math than just proving things. And so you had, in this foundational crisis, the majority of mathematics at that time were certainly, you could say they were logically based, which are the formalists, I'm sorry, the logicists, where the new foundation has to be logic, right? The formalists, well, you know, as I just explained, it's all about proofs and stuff like this. But then there was a small minority of mathematicians, and guess what they were called—the intuitionists—who were just like, no, the basis of mathematics is intuition. Really interesting thought, and they were like the hecklers at the back of the room, right? And and it was it was getting pretty ugly. Which side of the fence are you on? And um, what was fascinating is. You know, there was Bertrand Russell comes along and he says, well, here's the new foundation. There's a whole, I'm cutting the story really short. And he says, okay, I've figured it out. Here's the new system to uh, to replace Euclid. And it's based on logic and all this. And then a guy named uh, Kurt Gödel comes along and he basically proves that that whole approach is wrong. It's mind-blowing. And Kurt Gödel and very few people really understand it. I'm not sure that I understand it fully. He comes and he says, you know what? our method of doing mathematics specifically the whole formal idea of proving everything is not that it's wrong, but it's limited. And, and, and in, essence, in the end, he says we can't have a perfect system. There's no such thing as perfect mathematics. I said that wrong. He believed mathematics. He was a Platonist as I am as well. So he believed mathematics is out there in the non-material world as this, as this higher truth of beauty. And we as human beings can only imperfectly apprehend and comprehend what's really going on there, right? And, and, and Gödel yes. says our formal mathematics that we said was what math was all about is limited. And and so in some ways he was siding with the intuitionists in the end, that the real basis of mathematics is more than perhaps what we as human beings can really wrap our minds around. It didn't mean that mathematics ended, but what it does mean is the way we had been thinking of mathematics, that idea and this quest for perfect certain truth was over. (laughs) And so I bring all that about because if I look at this more philosophically, What's really needed? Now, it's it's fascinating to say that this foundational crisis in mathematics happened at the same time as a foundational as a foundational crisis in science. I think it's it, it was, um, and I'm not an expert in this, but it was the ultraviolet effect or something, some experiment within the world of physics that eventually led people to realize that Newtonian mechanics, the laws of Isaac Newton, were not were not valid in all situations. And out of this, out of that crisis of science, came these two new studies that most people at least have heard of, which is relativity and quantum. And Max Planck and Einstein and all of these ideas that came, this new kind of science that violated the previous science that came before with Isaac Newton and all of this. We needed something more than what came before. And so there's there's this new kind of thinking that's demanded in the world of science, a new kind of thinking that's not just the old thinking. Now, the old thinking was the thinking really dominated by Greek, logical, concrete, black and white thinking. And it's not like that old thinking is no longer valid for any reason, but to really make further strides in our world today of math and science, there's a new kind of thinking. And I, and I'm, I have a little bit of a hard time saying what that thinking is, but I'd say that it is more intuition based, it is relativistic. It is, you have the, it's paradoxical that sometimes you need to think of, for instance, with parallel lines, do parallel lines meet? Well, in one way we can think they never meet and the other way, well, they could meet at infinity and it depends how we look at it. They're both part of the truth. And so it's a new kind of thinking that's, that's needed today that isn't rigid, it's flexible. And I think that's part of the problem in the world today. I think we're, we are getting stuck in this rigid old kind of thinking and we need to become more flexible in so many ways in the world today. And that's what I'm hoping to develop a little bit with our students. And so part of what I just said, I spent a lot of time with my students in 12th grade, really bringing them through this foundational crisis and this philosophical, realization of what is needed in the world today in terms of thinking. And of course, you know, top scientists and mathematicians, they know this to some degree, even if they don't know the history of it. Right. And the truth is most of our world is stuck in an old kind of thinking. And I'm not patting myself on the back and say, I've got it all figured out. That's not what I mean. But I do think we're living at a very exciting time. And yes, we still need to think logically but I still think we need to be open and find ways to be open to new ideas through our intuition, which is different than just being convinced that something's true through our feelings. It's a very different world and and getting sucked into believing narratives and all this other sort of thing.
0: Wow, that was a beautiful delivery of a very complicated idea it's not completely unattainable. I think that you're touching on something that goes back to developing a whole person. A whole person needs to be able to feel, but has to be able to discern the differences between, uh, what they're feeling and the discovery of something new that evolves what they're thinking and what they're feeling. I think being stuck in a way where your identity is the thing that holds you back, uh, needs to have, uh, you need to talk this, these new generation of children through that because they see too much of it in the world where, you know, right and wrong is, an argument of feeling, and shutting down a debate. And what you really want to do is continue to think. And the only way you can continue to think is if you're not completely wrapped up in the answer, but you're wrapped up in the discovery, the process of discovery. Yes,
1: I love the words discovery and process. Absolutely. I love the words discovery and process. And, you know, you said, you know, with the children, with our students, there's a right time to do it. And there are so many times we all do this of course a child has a belief and and we allow that belief to happen because it's appropriate for that age right or there's a kind of thinking that they have you know i I give this example if a child asks a question why are leaves green the answer to that question will vary tremendously depending on the age of the child you know, if they're in high school, we could talk about chlorophyll and, and, you know, the whole looking at it from a chemical process on the other end of the spectrum with a kindergartner or a young child, it could be just because it's beautiful. That could be an answer for them. And so how we talk to the children and how we bring up their awareness and consciousness around certain things evolves with time. So that's why all of what, much of what I just said, I wouldn't do before 11th or 12th grade to make them aware of these things. And even for a 10th grader, as a 10th grader, I want my 10th grade, for instance, I want my 10th graders absolutely to believe that two parallel lines never meet. And then in 11th grade, we come and through projective geometry, which is an amazing study in the Waldorf curriculum. We then say, well, I kind of lied to you. <laughs> Guess what? <laughs> when else do we do that? You know, in second grade, we tell kids, you know, you can't subtract a bigger number from a smaller. They get in seventh grade. Sure, you can. They're just all little negative numbers or, you know, eighth and ninth grade. I say you can't square it a negative number. And then in 11th grade, we say, well, what if you could? Right. And so right. it's just it's part of this natural progression. It's OK for students to for for younger students to believe certain things. And that's part of what I want them to believe, because I want them to go through that whole development, that evolution in their own consciousness. It's
0: powerful. Certainly is, and it's developmentally necessary to, to believe something until that belief needs to be broken and then it's replaced. But you still preserve the sense of wonder, the motivation. They don't look at it as a betrayal of trust. They look at it as the opening of the world. A world by necessity has to be small for smaller children. But we live in a world that as you progressively get older, the argument is to make continue to make it smaller, continue to break it into a tribe, uh, continue to believe what I tell you, which is what Pinker was talking about, and why are these beliefs so, so ingrained when we know for a fact, when the numbers and the truth tells us that we live in the most wonderful time that it, that it is to be a human. Well, it's because you're not comparing it to a time when uh, you know, disease was lethal or where, uh, like your, your, your grandfather. May we all live to see these incredible changes in our lives and may the world move as quickly as it did for your, your grandfather. Like Ab- absolutely. For, us, for our children.
1: You know, we've got our challenges today. There's no doubt about it. No doubt about it whatsoever, but they're different challenges than in the past but the world is not a bad place. It's an exciting place. And it's important for our students to realize that they're born at this time for a reason. That's part of their destiny to discover, but they're born here at this time in this world now at a very exciting time. That is absolutely true.
0: Well, this was a great discussion. I'm so glad that we had it. Every time we talk, we come up with a, uh another way of looking at the same things but through these beautiful stories. Um, I'm looking forward to our next one. I hope that you have a safe and beautiful trip to India, and I'm looking forward to the next time. Do you want to close this out with anything, with anything, any other thoughts you might have to help us close the podcast?
1: Well, I mean, a lot of this is, is really all about independent thinking, isn't it? To develop independent thinking, it's so important. And, you know, part of the way that we develop, you know, our own thinking and we develop that openness is encountering other people that have different views. And that's one of the powers of being able to travel to <laughs> different countries. It's a privilege for me to be able to go to <laughs> India. And that's that's helped to really shape who I am. And and I like to think help to make me a more flexible thinker uh, myself. Uh-huh. Thank you, Mark. I've appreciated our discussions and um, look forward to the next time that we meet.
0: Absolutely. Let's do it again, and I'm sure we'll do it again soon.
1: Okay. Bye, everyone.